Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. For this episode, we're reaching back into the archive nearly 20 years to feature one of the most anticipated events in our series at that time, a talk and reading by Irish poet and Nobel laureate, the late Seamus Heaney, from Portland Arts and Lectures in 2002. Heaney passed away 11 years later in 2013. Heaney opens with poems from his very first collection and then takes us on a journey through more than four decades of his work that touches on everything from the sounds and smells of his mother baking bread in the 1940s to his deep knowledge of poetry and its influence on his work, to meditations on the role of the artist in moments of political or national crisis. This last subject is, of course, for Heaney, Ireland's Troubles, the sectarian violence that erupted in 1965 and lasted more than 30 years in Ireland and the UK. It was a time when he says, everybody knew somebody who had been shot or blown up no matter which side you were on. Heaney is famous for his depictions of rural Ireland that can feel ancient and deeply modern all at once, and this is what gives his work power and relevance today. Heaney begins his talk with his connection to Oregon's own William Stafford, whose work he was introduced to in his first year of university by a professor who had spent time at Reed College. Heaney says, quote, So from the beginning, Portland, poetry, and promise have all been linked together. Here's Heaney. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be in Portland, and I'm delighted to be in the arts and lecture series here. Uh, Portland figured in my imaginings early on when I began to teach in Queen's University Belfast in the 1960s. My professor, the head of the department there, was a man called John Harvey, and he had spent time at uh, Reed College just before that, and he had met uh, William Stafford, whom I had also read. He told me a dismaying thing that William Stafford wrote a poem every day. And I was just starting out. I thought I was doing pretty well. I had one or two every month at the time. But then um, I got to know Stafford's work, and uh, uh, it, it, we admired it a lot. Uh, he was published in a book uh, called Five American Poets, edited by Ted Hughes and Tom Gunnaway in the 60s. And I remember seeing in Ted Hughes's house uh, Stafford's first volume, book called West of Your City, I think. And when I got to California in 1970, I tried to find it. I wrote to the publisher, I've forgotten, a place called Los Gatos in California. I got the letter back, said it had been closed down, the publisher. So, but nevertheless, I got his work eventually. So uh, from the beginning, Portland poetry and promise have all been linked together. Um, I want to... Uh, 
read some poems from my first book, written at that time in the 1960s, and some more recent ones, so it would be poems from all periods. I was lecturing in English, as I say, and um, I have to thank English teachers throughout my career since I was a schoolboy for leading towards, leading towards poetry. One of the poets I studied at sixth form, and who has stayed with me, and to whom I think any poet will return for uh, confirmation about the nature of the calling and uh, instruction about it, is William Wordsworth. And there is a, a little section in Wordsworth's autobiography, his poem, The Prelude, which he calls The Growth of a Poet's Mind. There are four or five lines that suited my own uh, experience so well that uh, the, if I ever wrote an autobiography, which I, I don't expect I will, I could put, I could put these lines on the, as an epigraph. Uh, Wordsworth's talking about uh, his transferal from early uh, life in uh, Hawkshead and then a removal to another part of the Lake District later on. And he says, uh, fair seed time had my soul, and I grew up fostered alike by beauty and by fear, much favored in my birthplace, and no less in that beloved vale to which ere long I was transplanted. I think transplanting is probably a little bit of exile, a little bit of displacement is probably uh, important in the lives of uh, creative people. A little bit of exile from the first place uh, is, is a great help. Beauty and fear. And I thought I would begin with a poem. Uh, one of the first poems I wrote, it is about being scared. It's a kind of Wordsworthy and type poem. I wasn't thinking of Wordsworth when I wrote it. Like all young poets, I was thinking of myself. And, uh, and um, it's called Death of a Naturalist. It was described once in the Irish Times when it appeared in a little pamphlet as a long, disappointing poem about frogs. <laughs> but I, I've always maintained that it is not long at all. It's quite short. Anyway, there's a reference to the fla flax dam. This was about kind of... Uh, it tells the story of, of a kind of childhood encounter with, with uh, a scarcer aspect of the world around one, the frogs. In a flax dam, a dam, uh, a place where the flax crop was buried on, in water and uh, laid, uh, allowed to ret, the technical term, to keep it under water until it began to stink and reek and then it was taken out and went on to other processes. Death of a Naturalist. All year the flax dam festered in the heart of the townland. Green and heavy-headed, flax had rotted there, weighted down by huge sods. Daily it sweltered in the punishing sun. Bubbles gargled delicately. Blue bottles wove a strong gauze of sound around the smell. There were dragonflies, spotted butterflies, but best of all was the warm, thick slobber of frog spawn that grew like clotted water in the shade of the banks. Here, every spring, 
I would fill jam pot fulls of the jellied specks to range on windowsills at home, on shelves at school, and wait and watch until the fattening dots burst into nimble swimming tadpoles. Miss Walls would tell us how the daddy frog was called a bullfrog and how he croaked and how the mammy frog laid hundreds of little eggs and this was frog spawn. You could tell the weather by frogs too for they were yellow in the sun and brown in rain. Then one hot day when fields were rank with cow dung in the grass the angry frogs invaded the flax dam. I ducked through hedges to a coarse croaking that I hadn't heard before. The air was thick with a bass chorus. Right down the dam, gross-bellied frogs were cocked on sods. Their loose necks pulsed like sails. Some hopped. The slap and plop were obscene threats. Some sat poised like mud grenades, their blunt heads farting. I sickened, turned and ran. The great slime kings were gathered there for vengeance, and I knew that if I dipped my hand, the spawn would clutch it. Um, thank you very much. I think it's better to hold the applause to tell you the truth, because <laughs> if you half like it, you can half applaud. And, and if you don't like it, you don't want to applaud, and there's a whole problem arises. But if you're overcome by the need, of course you're free to. <laughs> this is called Mossbon Sunlight. Mossbon was the name of the farm where I came to, grew up. This imagines the farmhouse, the kitchen of the farmhouse, round about, say, the summer of 1939 when I was infans, as they say in Latin, an infant. The meaning of infans, of course, is the unspeaking. That it's unspeaking. I imagine myself in the cradle, taking in the actual surroundings, the, the, the atmosphere, the silence, broken only by a woman baking bread, my aunt, and uh, sunlight out in the yard, just absorbing. Um, coming to. It's, it's a poem that really would like to be a Vermeer, if it could be, but, but what can be a Vermeer except, except a Vermeer? Most born, sunlight. There was a sunlit absence. The helmeted pump in the yard heated its iron. Water honeyed in the slung bucket and the sun stood like a griddle cooling against the wall of each long afternoon. So her hand scuffled over the bakeboard. The reddening stove sent its plaque of heat against her, where she stood in a flowery apron by the window. Now she dusts the board with a goose's wing. Now sits, broad-lapped, with whitened nails and measling shins. Here is a space again, the scone rising to the tick of two clocks. And here is love, like a tinsmith's scoop, sunk past its gleam in the meal bin.
The atmosphere in that kitchen um, would sometimes, when I came home from school, be different when I was a youngster. Something strange about it. Then I realized my mother wasn't there. She was up the room, as we said. Then you realize there was somebody else up there. Then the doctor came down with his bag. Then you went up. And she was in bed, your mother, and then there was a, another little mite in the bed <laughs> beside her. And of course you discovered that the doctor had brought you another brother or sister in his bag. <laughs> so it was a very strange, tender, mysterious moment. But then eventually, of course, it was all out of the bag. You discovered that that wasn't how the babies came at all. <laughs> this poem is called Out of the Bag. <laughs> it's um, my own sense of the doctor's surgery uh, because of this uh, story of how the babies came. I, I, I imagined the word surgery itself is a kind of menacing one. And uh, I imagined it being a kind of a halfway house between a laboratory and an old-style butcher shop with bits of babies hanging up all around it, <laughs> the makings of little ones. I truly did. And uh, this is section one and section four of a longer poem, but it makes a kind of coherent uh, reading, I think. Out of the bag. All of us came in Dr. Kerlin's bag. He'd arrive with it, disappear to the room, and by the time he'd reappear to wash those nosy, rosy, big, soft hands of his in the scullery basin, its lined insides, the color of a spaniel's inside lug, was empty for all to see. The trap-sprung mouth, unsnibbed and gaping wide, then, like a hypnotist unwinding us, he'd wind the instruments back into their lining, tie the cloth like an apron round itself, darken the door, and leave, with the bag in his hand, a plump arc by the keel. Until the next time came, and in he'd come in his fur-lined collar that was also spaniel-coloured, and go stooping up to the room again, a whiff of disinfectant, a Dutch interior gleam of waistcoat satin and highlights on the forceps. Getting the water ready, that was next. Not plumping hot and not lukewarm, but soft, sud luscious, saved for him from the rain butt, and savoured by him afterwards, all thanks denied as he toweled hard and fast, then held his arms out suddenly behind him to be squared and silk-lined into the camel coat. At which point he once turned his eyes upon me, hyperborean, beyond the north wind blue. Two peepholes to the locked room I saw into every time his name was mentioned. Skimmed milk and ice, swabbed porcelain, the white and chill of tiles, steel hooks, chrome surgery tools, and blood drapes in the sawdust where it thickened at the foot of each cold wall. And overhead, 
the little pendant, teeth-hued infant parts strung neatly from a line up near the ceiling. A toe, a foot and shin, an arm. The room I came from, and the rest of us all came from, stays pure reality, where I stand alone, standing the passage of time. And she's asleep in sheets put on for the doctor, wedding presents that showed up again and again, bridal and usual and useful at births and at deaths. Me at the bedside, incubating for real, peering, appearing to her as she closes and opens her eyes, then lapses back into a faraway smile I would enter every time to assist and be asked in that hoarsened whisper of triumph. And what do you think of the new wee baby the doctor brought for us all when I was asleep? Uh, one part of us and one part of every writer a very poet wants the poem to belong in the once upon a time to have the completely intact and integrally imagined wholeness of that once upon a timeness but also I think every writer poet feels the need to respond to historical time to the times as much as the once upon a time that's that's not as easy as it sounds. Uh, most people have a certain kind of equipment and it works in a certain way and if they turn it towards unexpected things like war, destruction, whatever, it's not much good to them. So many writers in Northern Ireland for 30, 20, 30 years were in a, a lyric poets, especially in a, in a position they weren't sure how to handle all that. Didn't want to be writing rhetoric or propaganda or journalism. Had to spring from something inside, address the outside. First way I found of going at it was to remember, typically, right back, all of this came out into the public domain, all the violence sprang from a moment in 5th of October 1968, it sprang loose, and then one thing led to another. Once you unleash the violence, you can be expected to run in small compass or in large compass. Anyway, people were saying the place was so quiet. Of course it was quiet because there was a lot of things. A lot of, a lot of things were hidden. A lot of danger was pressed down. A lot of it was silenced, but it was dormant. So this goes back to a dormant moment in the same kitchen where the infant was lying in the earlier poem. This is a moment when a policeman, RUC man, member of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, enters that kitchen. My father is there as a farmer giving tillage returns. The policeman is doing a quite a routine job, taking the census of the farm of the beasts and the cattle and crops. My father is also doing But there is that sense of the other and the danger, because the policeman represents the other side. He's part of the uh, he's kind of part of the paramilitary police force, and we are part of the minority. And there's courtesy, and there's 
there's the deep division. And uh, my father would often make mistakes in rendering his uh, accounts, not deliberately, I don't think, but a youngster is terrifically detailed and vigilant, and I was full of fear for him. So this is another fear moment. Different kind of fear. A constable calls. His bicycle stood at the windowsill, the rubber cowl of a mud splasher skirting the front mudguard, its fat black handle grips heating in sunlight, the spud of the dynamo gleaming and cocked back, the pedal treads hanging relieved of the boot of the law. His cap was upside down on the floor next his chair. The line of its pressure ran like a bevel in his slightly sweating hair. He had unstrapped the heavy ledger, and my father was making tillage returns in acres, roods, and perches. Arithmetic and fear. I sat staring at the polished holster with its button flap, the braid cord looped into the revolver butt. Uh, any other root crops, mangles, marrow stems, anything like that? No. But was there not a line of turnips where the seed ran out in the potato field? I assumed small guilts and sat imagining the black hole in the barracks. He stood up, shifted the baton case further round on his belt, closed the doomsday book, fitted his cap back with two hands and looked at me as he said goodbye. A shadow bobbed in the window. He was snapping the carrier spring over the ledger. His boot pushed off, and the bicycle ticked, ticked, ticked. This is from a later sequence of poems called Station Island in 1984. At this point in our lives, everybody knew somebody who had been shot or blown up, or no matter which side you were on. And um, I, I had been reading other poets for instruction, for example, and um, one of the poems which suddenly attained powerful immediacy in spite of its venerable, classical, distant medieval status, Dante's Divine Comedy, it became suddenly terrifically urgent. Uh, Dante's poem, whether it's Inferno, Paradiso, Purgatorio, he's led through the underworld, remember, and he keeps meeting people who keep telling their stories. Do you want to tell what happened? Um, the Russian poet Ozip Mandelstam said of Dante's Inferno, I think it was, that the encounter with the different shades he says, the encounters have the urgency of a prison visit. I want to tell you what happened. So one, one way then that came to me that we might be able to address all this was to let other people speak and tell their stories. So I had been quite close to the world of Dante because uh, Catholic doctrine didn't change much between uh, 13... <laughs> or 12, 16... 1960. Did change then, all right. So I had been on this pilgrimage. I had done this pilgrimage three times as a teenager to an island 
Constation Island in Loch Derg. Three-day pilgrimage, you cross water, you remove your shoes, you fast, you pray, you repeat exercises, you go round in circles, you become quite dozy, hallucinatory, sit up all night. And um, so I thought, this was a place where you could see, you could have hallucinations and see visions. So the, the shape of the poem is the pilgrim, who is a writer, walks round and round and encounters various shades, some from history, but some from his own lifetime who have been victims of their violence. And this, in this section, the pilgrim poet writer is standing by the waterside doing one of the exercises, contemplating, saying the prayers. And this man whom we had known earlier comes present as a ghostly figure and tells his story. Uh, the man had been a footballer, a friend of the writer earlier on, and he had been shot in a random sectarian assassination at night by people he more or less knew. And uh, he tells his story, and the writer then feels inadequate, and the, he gets the shade gives him a kind of absolution. So it's from Station Island, section seven. First voice, the voice of the writer. Second voice, the story. I had come to the edge of the water, soothed by just looking, idling over it as if it were a clear barometer or a mirror, when his reflection did not appear, but I sensed a presence entering into my concentration on not being concentrated as he spoke my name. And though I was reluctant, I turned to meet his face, and the shock is still in me at what I saw. His brow was blown open above the eye, and blood had dried on his neck and cheek. Easy now, he said. It's only me. You've seen men as raw after a football match. What time it was when I was wakened up, I still don't know. But I heard this knocking, knocking, and it scared me, like the phone in the small hours. So I had the sense not to put on the light, but looked out from behind the curtain. I saw two customers on the doorstep, and an old Land Rover with the doors open parked on the street, so I let the curtain drop. But they must have been waiting for it to move, for they shouted to come down into the shop. This man had a shop, he lived above it. She started to cry then and roll around the bed, lamenting and lamenting to herself, not even asking who it was. Is your head astray? Or what's come over you? I roared, more to bring myself to my senses than out of any real anger at her. For the knocking shook me, the way they kept it up, and her whinging and half-screeching made it worse. All the time they were shouting, Shop! Shop! So I pulled on my shoes and a sports coat and went back to the window and called out, What do you want? Could you quiet in the racket or I'll not come down at all? There's a child not well. Open up and see what you've got. Pills or a powder or something in a bottle, one of them said. He stepped back off the footpath so I could see his face in the street lamp. And when the other moved, I knew them both. But bad and all as the knocking was, the quiet hit me worse. She was quiet herself now, lying dead still, whispering to watch out. 
At the bedroom door, I switched on the light. It's odd they didn't look for a chemist. Who are they anyway at this hour of the night? She asked me, with the eyes standing in her head. I know them to see, I said. But something made me reach and squeeze her hand across the bed before I went downstairs into the aisle of the shop. I stood there, going weak in the legs. I remember the stale smell of cooked meat or something coming through as I went to open up. From then on, you know as much about it as I do. Did they say nothing? Nothing. What would they say? Were they in uniform, not masked in any way? They were barefaced as they would be in the day, shites thinking they were the be-all and the end-all. Not that it was any consolation, but they were caught, I told him, and got jailed. Big-limbed, decent, open-faced, he stood forgetful of everything now, except whatever was welling up in his spoiled head, beginning to smile. Well, you've put on the weight since you did your courting in that big Austin you got the loan of on a Sunday night. Through life and death, he had hardly aged. There always was an athlete's cleanliness shining off him, and except for the ravaged forehead and the blood, he was still that same rangy midfielder in a blue jersey and starched pants, the one stylist on the team, the perfect, clean, unthinkable victim. Forgive the way I have lived indifferent. Forgive my timid, circumspect involvement, I surprised myself by saying. Forgive my eye, he said. All that's above my head. And then a stun of pain seemed to go through him, and he trembled like a heat wave and faded. The interesting thing is that years ago when I would read that poem, people would assume it was an IRA assassination. There was actually two policemen uh, who were uh, royalist paramilitaries. It was a nice question as old as Aristotle's poetics came up. Would you reveal in the poem directly that they were RUC men or not? Aristotle says that the poet deals what, with what is likely to happen. So you're doing, if you, if you put the RUC in directly, you're saying all the RUC are killers by night. Not true. So I just left it hanging. But the situation where, where people in uniform are actually part of another terrorist organization isn't confined to Northern Ireland, as we know. It's all over the place. I was in South Africa recently. that People recognized the situation there. Other parts too. This poem is called Oysters. It came to me, I should read it in the Northwest. <laughs> it was written after a most jocund, as Wordsworth would say, experience, with was a French writer, French poet from Brittany, a land of the oyster too, called Eugène Guilvic, and he came to Ireland. We traveled to one of the great oyster places in the world, Morans of the Weir in County Galway. And it's the first time I ever saw anyone order 24 oysters straight off and, <laughs> and eat them indeed. This was also at the time when up there, 
all this pressure, all this danger, all this, there was in one's head the sense of the, the sadness and the danger and the suffering in the north. So there we were enjoying ourselves. Oysters. Our shells clacked on the plates. My tongue was a filling estuary. My palate hung with starlight. As I tasted the salty Pleiades, Orion dipped his foot into the water. Alive and violated, they lay on their beds of ice, bivalves. The split bulb and philandering sigh of ocean, millions of them ripped and shocked and scattered. We had driven to that coast through flowers and limestone, and there we were, toasting friendship, laying down a perfect memory in the cool of thatch and crockery. Over the Alps, packed deep in hay and snow, the Romans hauled their oysters south to Rome. I saw damp panniers disgorge the frond-lipped, brine-stung glut of privilege, and was angry that my trust could not repose in the clear light, like poetry or freedom leaning in from sea. I ate the day deliberately, that its tang might quicken me all into verb, pure verb. The desire to be pure verb is kind of the basis, I suppose, of lyric, lyric utterance. And uh, I just want to read a couple of three poems uh, which are more lyric, I suppose. First seed time had my soul and I grew up, fostered alike, up there in the north by beauty and by fear. But by the time I was writing those poems, I was actually living in County Wicklow in the Irish Republic, south of Dublin, living in a, a beloved vale, as words would say, to which I had been transplanted. It was a place called Glenmore, means the big glen. We had a house uh, for four years there, a little gate lodge. It was, I, in the course of my four years, when I left Belfast and left the university, lived there full time as a writer, had resigned my job. I went, one of the things I did as a freelancer was to do little television things. And I went to Wordsworth's cottage in, uh, in Grasmere and did a small documentary on it. And when I came home, I was entranced by the uh, likeness between our house and Wordsworth's house. Uh, my wife had disturbed to find this inflation going on in the house, but there it was. Nevertheless, the place was a haven. And um, a place of writing, a kind of PowerPoint. So I read two poems from the Glenmore sonnet sequence. One about the quiet moment at night, listening to the ship, the BBC shipping forecast. And it was only then that I realized it was to do with the real world as well as being just a beautiful linguistic invocation. Uh, the BBC shipping forecast invokes all the names of the regions of the sea from Iceland down to the Bay of Biscay right on the North Sea and all that, and uh, very beautiful invocations. But it's also to tell trawlers, of course, that there's gales coming up. And that was the first time I realized it really had a purpose was when we lived in Wicklow. <laughs> <laughs> so the, these, these are two sonnets. 
Dogger, Rockall, Malin, Irish Sea. Green swift upsurges. North Atlantic flux, conjured by that strong gale warning voice, collapse into a sibilant penumbra. Midnight and close down. Sirens of the tundra, of eel road, seal road, keel road, whale road, raise their wind compounded keen behind the bays and drive the trawlers to the lee of Wicklow. L'Etoile, Le Guillemot, La Belle Hélène, nursed their bright names this morning in the bay that toil like mortar. It was marvellous and actual. I said out loud, a haven. The word deepening, clearing, like the sky elsewhere on Minches, Cromarty, the Pharaohs. I dreamt we slept in a moss in Donegal, on turf banks, under blankets, with our faces exposed all night in a wetting drizzle, pallid as the dripping sapling birches. Lorenzo and Jessica in a cold climate, Dermot and Grania waiting to be found. Darkly asperged and sensed, we were laid out like breathing effigies on a raised ground. And in that dream I dreamt, how like you this, our first night years ago in that hotel, when you came with your deliberate kiss to raise us towards the lovely and painful covenants of flesh, our separateness, the respite in our dewy, dreaming faces. I was very lucky to be able to go back to that cottage we lived in it for four years, we had to leave it, and then I was able to get it as a place of writing to buy it in 1988. And of course, as in all of these cases, I had one idea how it should be kept, my wife had another idea <laughs> what might be done with it. So this is called the skylight. You were the one for skylights. I opposed cutting into the seasoned tongue and groove of pitch pine. I liked it low and closed, its claustrophobic nest up in the roof effect. I liked the snuff dry feeling, the perfect trunk lid fit of the old ceiling. Under there, it was all hutch and hatch, the blue slates kept the heat like midnight thatch. But when the slates came off, extravagant sky entered and held surprise wide open. For days I felt like an inhabitant of that house where the man, sick of the palsy, was lowered through the roof, had his sins forgiven, was healed, took up his bed and walked away. The desire for the unbounded is part of the impulse. But, of course, if we desert the endured and just head for the desired, we lose ourselves there too. Uh, this uh, this uh, next poem is a retelling of a story, an old story, 
that is in one of the annals of the monastery of Clonmacnois. It's, it's just a story, but it's, it's a kind of, it's full of suggestion. The annals say, when the monks of Clonmacnois were all at prayers inside the oratory, a ship appeared above them in the air. The anchor dragged along behind so deep it hooked itself into the altar rails. And then, as the big hull rocked to a standstill, a crewman shinned and grappled down the rope and struggled to release it, but in vain. This man cannot bear our life here and will drown, the abbot said, unless we help him. So they did. The freed ship sailed, and the man climbed back out of the marvelous as he had known it. This is another story from another old text. It's called St. Kevin and the Blackbird. And then there was St. Kevin and the Blackbird. The saint is kneeling, arms stretched out inside his cell. But the cell is narrow. So one turned up palm is out the window, stiff as a crossbeam, when a blackbird lands and lays in it and settles down to nest. <laughs> Kevin feels the warm eggs, the small breast, the tucked neat head and claws, and finding himself linked into the network of eternal life is moved to pity. Now he must hold his hand like a branch out in the sun and rain for weeks until the young are hatched and fledged and flown. And since the whole thing's imagined anyhow, imagine being Kevin. <laughs> Which is he? Self-forgetful or in agony all the time, from the neck on out down through his hurting forearms? Are his fingers sleeping? Does he still feel his knees? Or has the shut-eyed blank of under-earth crept up through him? Is there distance in his head? Alone and mirrored clear in love's deep river, to labor and not to seek reward, he prays. A prayer his body makes entirely, for he has forgotten self, forgotten bird, and on the riverbank, forgotten the river's name. I want to read uh, about three or four. Thank you very much. After September 11th, I was asked, to, could I think of something that might be read? And I suggested a piece from Beowulf, which I translated this Anglo-Saxon poem. Beowulf is, of course, a warrior. And the first part of the poem is about him winning warrior glory, defeating this monster and the monster and so on. But then the second half, he's an old king and the dragon stirs and, uh, in his kingdom and he has to go out to face it. It's a much more elegiac, much slower, tenderer, more sorrowful section of the poem. So the misery of the king. It was like the misery 
endured by an old man who has lived to see his son's body swing on the gallows. He begins to keen and weep for his boy, watching the raven gloat where he hangs. He can be of no help. The wisdom of age is worthless to him. Morning after morning, he wakes to remember that his boy is gone. He has no interest in living on until another heir is born in the hall, now that his firstborn has entered the door of death forever. He gazes sorrowfully at his son's dwelling, the banquet hall bereft of all delight, the windswept hearthstone. The horsemen are sleeping, the warriors underground. What was is no more. No tunes from the harp, no cheer raised in the yard. Alone with his longing, he lies down on his bed and sings a lament. Everything seems too large, the steadings and the fields. Such was the feeling of loss endured by that doomed Lord. He was helplessly placed to set to rights the wrong committed. Another poem about fear, more about awe, more about shock, something larger than personal fear, the kind of thing that runs through the world when the unexpected happens, such as the events of September the 11th. And I found in a, a classical poem, in a poem by the Latin poet Horace, Quintus Horatius Flaccus, Odes, Book 1, number 34. I think uh, I'd known the poem before and I'd talked about it in a lecture for different purposes and I remembered it and I thought I can translate it as a response to the world out there after this. So I'll read it and then I'll read uh, uh, just a couple to end with. The poem is called, I called it Horace and the Thunder. And it's a, it's a translation. The words in the first three stanzas are in Horace. High things being knocked down and so on. But I, 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 I beheaded, I took off the first stanza and I put on a last stanza of my own. It's called Horace and the Thunder, after Horace Odes 1.34. Anything can happen. You know how Jupiter will mostly wait for clouds to gather head before he hurls the lightning. Well, just now, he galloped his thunder cart and his horses across a clear blue sky. It shook the earth and the clogged under earth, the river sticks, the winding streams, the Atlantic shore itself. Anything can happen. The tallest things be overturned, those in high places daunted, those overlooked regarded. Stropped beak fortune swoops, making the air gasp, tearing off crests, letting them drop bloodily wherever. Ground gives. The heaven's weight lifts up off Atlas like a kettle lid. Capstones shift. Nothing resettles right. Telluric ash and fire spores boil away. And finally, I'd like to read two sonnets I wrote after my mother died. Just to go back to the first place, to the first house 
to a moss ball. One is about peeling potatoes, one is about folding sheets. So, two poems from Clearances. When all the others were away at Mass, I was all hers as we peeled potatoes. They broke the silence, let fall one by one, like solder weeping off the soldering iron. Cold comfort set between us, things to share, gleaming in a bucket of clean water. And again let fall, little pleasant splashes from each other's work would bring us to our senses. So when the parish priest at her bedside went hammer and tongs at the prayers for the dying, and some were responding and some crying, I remembered her head bent towards my head, her breath in mine, her fluent dipping knives, never closer the whole rest of our lives. The cool that came off sheets just off the line made me think the damp must still be in them. But when I took my corners of the linen and pulled against her, first straight down the hem and then diagonally, then flapped and shook the fabric like a sail in a crosswind, they made a dried out undulating thwack. So we'd stretch and fold and end up hand to hand for a split second as if nothing had happened, for nothing had that had not always happened beforehand, day by day, just touch and go, coming close again by holding back, in moves where I was X and she was O, inscribed in sheets she'd sewn from ripped out flour sacks. Thank you very much. That was Seamus Heaney from a Portland Arts and Lectures event in 2002. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for the Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock, with support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.